Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We are delighted today on Ed's Up to have as our guest Camille Catlett. Camille is a consultant uh, based in Carborough, North Carolina. She has had many years of experience in the field of early childhood. She's held a lot of different positions in public schools and professional associations in federal government, which is where I had the, the great pleasure to get to know her, as well as higher education. She's worked on a lot of U.S. Department of Education personnel preparation grants, and she spent over 20 years working on systems change projects at the esteemed Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute at the University of North Carolina. She's worked in over 30 states to incorporate an explicit emphasis on children and families that have diverse cultures, languages, abilities, life experiences, um, and to lead professional development efforts in over 30 states. So we are just delighted today to have Camille. Welcome, Camille. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Camille currently is um, supporting early intervention and early childhood colleagues through technical assistance, research presentations, writing, and product development. She's going to be our guest um, in a virtual uh, professional development uh, presentation here in Mississippi, and we're delighted that she's agreed to do that. Uh, her work across states has, again, been on being very intentional about including people from diverse backgrounds, cultures, whether linguistically, um, ability, and, and including equity in early childhood and early child special education courses, field experiences, and program practices. So, again, we're just really happy to have you here with us today, Camille. Thanks. Great to be here. Certainly from my early childhood perspective, I'm thrilled for you to be able to come in our state and talk with our uh, teacher educators of early childhood, as well as a general population presentation that you're going to be doing later on in the month of October. But when Melody and I have uh, done several interviews, we're always interested in how you decided your life's path. And when you were growing up or something in your background, uh, can you put your finger on what it was that perhaps led you down this particular road? Yeah, I can actually point to a couple of things. One is that um, I'm from my mine was a family that I grew up in um, of different faith backgrounds. So from the very earliest days, I remember I participated in um, the different um, faith practices of all of the neighbors. So went to mass with one family, participated in seders with another family. And so just that, that notion of um, different ways of being in the world, I think started there. The other thing that I just loved as a, a child, I remember watching movies and um, being fascinated with, with different accents and different languages and then became um, a foreign language major in, in high school. And that ultimately morphed into an appreciation of how important language is as a way of making our way in the world and um, pursuing studies in speech language pathology. So I think it's just from um, several different perspectives, always having this great great joy in difference and finding difference as something that was engaging and interesting rather than something that was off-putting. And I think it's just gone from there. Thank you for that, Camille, that, you know, that 
pointing out the the value of seeing diversity as something that adds to rather than takes away. So we really appreciate that. So Camille, you're a scientist and you've worked all across the nation to build these professional development systems that prepare people to work successfully with diverse um, groups of children and families. But why is it necessary that we specifically focus on the needs of children and families who are culturally, linguistically, and ability different? Yeah. Well, I think part of it has to do um, with where I live. And North Carolina is a state that racially, ethnically, has always had tremendous diversity. And just years ago, one of the things that we also became um, distinguished for is having a very um, steeply escalating number of families in the state who spoke Spanish. And so at the time I was working um, with uh, different states to make um, better connections between early childhood and early childhood special ed or early intervention colleagues in terms of at the family level, at the state agency level, at the um, higher ed level. And one of the things that, that led to was looking at the programs that were preparing future educators in the state of North Carolina. And we're very fortunate here. There's always been an emphasis on um, inclusion. And so our licensure is a blended birth through kindergarten licensure, preparing students to work with children with and without disabilities. And that's longstanding. But as we looked at the programs that were preparing future educators to support all of the other children in North Carolina, we found that they were pretty much um, just focused on average students. And average meant um, kids who looked like the majority of our students, which at that time were largely white women. So um, we really took a look at some of the evidence that was growing about how much more um, effective it was when early childhood educators had a background in supporting kids who reflected other kinds of diversity, linguistic diversity, um, just diversity in life experiences, And with that in mind, um, did the thing that made sense at the time, which was to apply for a federal grant. And there was a project called Crosswalks that we were happy to have funded by the U.S. Department of Education. And um, what that really led us to do was to take a look at whether it might be possible to explicitly and intentionally change coursework change field experiences and change program practices. So not only um, was there a shift in the content of what students were learning, but there also was an emphasis on recruiting and retaining um, diversity in the student body and in the future uh, early childhood educators. We were able to work with programs across North Carolina to really achieve um, some dramatic changes. And through a sequence of, of planning with campus and community partners and um, professional development and technical assistance, um, we're able to really make some significant progress in what students were learning. In fact, of the programs that we worked with, all of them ultimately required that their students spend time in a setting as part of their preparation where there were children who spoke other languages because what they found is their, their, their students were terrified of how on earth they could possibly support a child whose language they didn't speak. And it just became a really important component to add along with other aspects of preparation. 
And what happened next is pretty much, you know, where my, my path has led to taking that model and seeing that it really was successful and adding back in the component of emphasis on children with disabilities and inclusion. Because um, while North Carolina has that as a value of their um, licensure programs, other states did not. And that's where I was fortunate, um, again, working with really talented colleagues to take that model to other states. And um, where that has led is, is just um, pretty much what I'm, I'm doing today in lots of different states where they are truly making the commitment to shift from supporting all children to supporting each and every child. You know, we often hear uh, talk in the media or you know, within the education community about um, the achievement gaps between uh, among children who are ethnically different or racially different. But we don't hear uh, those of us in the special education community often talk about achievement gaps. But, you know, the, the, I think it's so important to point out that the overwhelming majority of children who are receiving special education in this country do not have cognitive disabilities. They are perfectly able to learn. And even the children with the most significant support needs um, can and do learn given the proper support. So, um, you know, just pointing out that we know that there are many children with disabilities who can and should be learning, but they're not getting the support that they need. And that even though there are gaps, and, and I've heard a number of people, you know, who just lay people say, well, yeah, there are, you think that a kid with a disability, there's not going to be learning gaps there. If they didn't, if they could learn like everybody else, they wouldn't be eligible for special education, which is totally erroneous, totally erroneous. And, you know, we just really want to point out the importance of having those inclusive practices and making sure that all children are getting the support that they need because they can and they will learn. The research is very clear about this, even children with, you know, more significant support needs. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I remember the, um, the first child I worked with in the clinic at San Diego State when I started my um, degree in, in speech language pathology. And what I remember is he was identified as a child with Down syndrome. That was the sole identifying feature of this little guy. And um, part of what has happened in our field, and this kind of is where my work is really focused right now, is a dramatic change in how we think about each child. Because we used to think this is a child who is a dual language learner, this is a child who has experienced trauma. This is a child with Down syndrome. And I think part of what we've realized is there is no child for whom there is a single characteristic that we more and more are both challenged and um, invited to excel by this notion of intersectionality. So yeah, it just what... I spend a lot of time with faculty members helping them to do, for example, we're working right now um, on a, a course with a community college, and um, they've taught this same course on young children um, with disabilities for, for 10 years. It hasn't been largely um, revised, and it's, it's organized by almost the, the disability of the week, and the whole course has now shifted to what do we know about language development and how can language development look different and be supported 
for a child who may have a disability and is also a dual language learner, for a child who may have a disability and also has just had um, tubes for the first time and is hearing clearly and is now in, in just this huge growth, growth spread. But I think the complexity of our work um, and our, our appreciation for how complex it is has only grown, which is frustrating to some, but very exciting to others. Um, I think there are, are wonderful, wonderful new resources. I just I had shared a, a set of some resources to go along with this, this podcast, but there's a, a terrific new publication called Culturally Responsive Teaching. And in many college programs, the emphasis on culture was other countries or different languages. And now I think we really have come to see how much we need to examine our own cultural values and beliefs and then understand what it is that we bring into each conversation. And also to look at all of the different ways in which culture impacts learning, impacts relationships. So, this is a, a, a terrific resource because part of what it does is get beyond we need to be culturally responsive to say, well, that involves understanding ourselves, that involves forging relationships, that involves, and it really breaks down the competencies necessary for culturally responsive teaching. Yeah, I really try to hit, hammer this hard in the in my teaching responsibilities here at Ole Miss in that you know, some, I think, historically, teachers have thought of cultural responsiveness as having one day every now and then for a special holiday or whatever. And, you know, just that this is something that is woven throughout the culture of the class, throughout the entire year, throughout a series of years. And, you know, I like to say kind of the same thing about cultural responsiveness that Marilyn Friends says about inclusiveness, and that's the smallest meaningful unit is a school. You cannot be inclusive in first grade and not in second grade or in math and not in science. And it's at the school level in the same way, I think, is about cultural responsiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, the other tremendous body of work that we are starting to see brought forward um, has to do with how we support um, young children, and particularly boys of color. There's a, a, a resource um, that Ioma Aruka and um, Cherry James created that's called Delivering on the Promise of Effective Early Childhood Education. It's a wonderful, wonderful compilation that really emphasizes how to support children of color. And it just, for anyone who's really committed to addressing the achievement gap by making learning um, more viable, more engaging, more supportive of black children, it's a, it's a must read. And in fact, some of the programs that I'm working with are using that. They're starting to, instead of um, having a textbook and a course that's organized by the order of the chapters in the textbook, they're instead thinking of what are the things that we need effective educators to have on their lifetime bookshelf to always be looking at and to, you know, I've I've created these wonderful little personas who are children about whom um, different challenges are posed across the semester. And faculty members are saying, well, you know, here's the, um, here's how this child is participating in second grade right now. Reading's not really interesting. What do Ruka and James have to say about what we might be thinking about to really be more likely to engage this child in learning. 
Well, it's just perfect that you mentioned uh, that work because we just interviewed Dr. Aruka last week for the podcast. So perfect. perfect. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. And she's back at, at UNC now. So um, I, have her, I have her back as a colleague. I can ask the question with regard to the impact that COVID-19 has had on public education. And I know uh, Melody was particularly concerned for a while about the U.S. Office of Education and what some of the decisions would have been, could have been, had advocates not intervened. But in terms of the day-to-day rural schools, which a lot of our people in Mississippi, of course, are teaching in and across the country, rurality is not just confined to Mississippi. North Carolina has rural areas as well. But what would be, and what have have you heard uh, as far as strategies and, and how to address some of the decisions schools have made about scheduling and uh, the, the virtual instruction versus the uh, COVID safety measures that are being taken in schools and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, just this is so complicated and so hard. And I think purely coincidentally, um, this is something that I really took a look at as part of a presentation I did in, in India two weeks ago because they were saying, you know, how is the U.S. handling this? And I think one of the things that is so hard is understanding that having a talented educator on one side of a screen and a young child on the other side of the screen is not the formula for learning. Um, and I just uh, a colleague with whom I, I, I co-direct um, a federal grant was was sharing that you know she has um, a fifth grade granddaughter and a second grade grandson, both of whom are just really bright kids. And for one of them, the um, you know mute unmute, um, go to this screen, go to this um, URL. Now we're we're looking at this. Is, is easy for her grandson. She has literally needed to be by, he, and he's a bright kid. So I think this is not easy for anyone. And I think there are, um, I think we're, we're starting to see some hybrid examples that will really bring children back into safe contact with adults and with each other. I don't think there's a magic answer. I think um, just really lots of precautions and tremendous support for families because the burden that this has placed on both urban and rural families is tremendous. I think we, we just, you know, technology is great. There have been so many things that have been um, put in place very quickly. There's tons of excellent content, but this is just incredibly hard work. And I think the, the best that we can do is to involve as many caring adults and making it work as we can. I think that's that's the only answer that that makes sense right now. Well, your work, as, as you have indicated to us, you are a really a master at taking evidence-based practices, things that work, and then translating them into practical, hands-on, this is what you do, regardless of where you're teaching or what your situation might be. So... What would you be able to share to us as far with us as far as the what you consider to be maybe the three or four research based, evidence based practices that we could think about or consider, both for educators and then maybe you'd have some, some tips for parents? 
Yeah. Well, I, I think um, one thing that's tremendously important to keep in mind is for many people, um, they consider the term evidence-based practice and research-based practice to be synonymous. And I think um, one of the things that, you know, again, um, colleagues here at, at UNC, Pam Winton, Virginia Bicey, Pat Wesley, really excelled in doing is helping us to understand that evidence-based practice certainly includes the best available research, but it also includes family and professional wisdom and knowledge. And um, what that means is that just because there's a research study just from working with children in Nome, Alaska, that says that a particular practice is, is just terrific for supporting literacy, I think to translate that to children in rural Mississippi or rural North Carolina or, um, or Chicago is not necessarily appropriate. I think what we do is we look for um, the buckets of evidence and then judiciously weave across those buckets. So I, I'll give you an example. Um, in 2014, after a lot of review and collaborative work, the Division for Early Childhood um, released the re recommended practices for children with or at risk for disabilities. And it's a set of um, practices in areas like practices for families, practices for interaction, practices for environments. And what has happened since is to create just a gorgeous suite of really useful tools. And that's one of the things that's on the handout. So one of the things that they have are practice guides for families. And so if, for example, for um, a young child who is not yet communicating verbally, um, if um, the team supporting that child were to um, suggest the use of signs and gestures, there's a sheet for families that they can either access on a computer or download to a phone that says, this is the practice for using signs and gestures. Here's what the practice is. And there's a video to say, here's what the practice looks like. And here's what it looks like when another family is using it. So just the, that idea of translational um, use of um, evidence-based resources is just tremendously important because it moves it from a, a document that is sitting on a shelf to daily use. Another example is um, in 2019, the National Association for the Education of Young Children created a position statement on equity. And it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautifully written. And they made a very bold decision to really focus on equity in, in every form, not exclusively racial or educational equity, but also to look at issues of gender, issues of ability. And what NAEYC did instead of saying, here's our new position statement, is they created what I call a landing pad. That's a place that anyone can go to say, if educators use the recommendations in this position statement, what will it look like? If um, administrators use the recommendations in this position statement, what will it look like? And there are also resources and other kinds of materials to really, again, move the words off the page and into practice. And I think when we find those 
those resources that truly reflect um, the the true value of evidence-based practice and help to translate them to daily use. That's truly wonderful. And, 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 and what I will share with you is that in, in my work, which is really working almost exclusively with early childhood faculty members to help them incorporate explicit content related to ability diversity and diversity of, of every other kind, to be able to show them the repository of all the recommended practice tools and to have them, um, for example, building the capacity of their students to form peer relationships between children with and without disabilities or children of different languages, to be able to show them a checklist that instead of saying build peer relationships says these are the components of how children relate to each other. Here's where you start. Here's where you look for it to evolve. And for them to be able to take that checklist and initially use that checklist of recommended practices while their students watch a video and say, which of the practices did you see? And to start to really build that understanding of how paper translates to practice is truly a wonderful thing to be able to accomplish. Someday I want to take a class under you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are in the process of rebuilding, as I said, um, one course at a community college that had been called... Young Children with Special Needs. That, that's the title that it held when we first looked at this um, syllabus. The title has been changed. It's now, I think it's Evidence-Based Practices for Supporting Inclusion of Young Children. The title has changed. The objective has changed. And the whole organization has changed. So part of what the course now includes is just we've created several personas, just little snapshots of children, each of whom has a different family configuration, each of whom has different likes and dislikes, each of whom has different capabilities and challenges in terms of learning. And some of whom also have different home languages and some of whom have different life circumstances. And those children will now be part of the whole course. So across the course, as they look at what are ways that you support language development, now it's looking at um, supporting social and emotional development. And what does that include? What are all the ways in which you support that happening? And how might it look for this particular child? Or what are the things that you might think to support this child? And so a course that had been organized disability by disability, as if there were different practices for supporting the social emotional development of a child who had learning disabilities as opposed to a child who had um, Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. And now it's so completely functional and translatable and they are completely overjoyed. I mean, it's gone from um, a course in which one of the assignments was to make posters to explain things to a unit specifically on what are ways that visual supports can, can be a resource to any child. And how does universal design for learning support each of the learners in the setting? So it just, that is... It's so exciting. <laughs> it is really 
that's what I do for a living. Yeah. I mean, it's just really exciting because, you know, one of the things I, I try to teach in my classes, I don't students, I don't want you to understand all the details about different disabilities. That, that part, there's another place for that, uh, for people who are, you know, you know, who are doing different jobs. What I want you to understand as future teachers is what to do when you find out you have students in your class who have varying needs, not about what are the criteria for a child who has an intellectual disability or any of the other disabilities, but what to do, what do I do about it? So, oh, Oh my goodness, we could carry on this conversation all day. This is so exciting. <laughs> but uh, we really look forward to hearing Camille Catlett again through our speaker series. So thank you, Camille, for joining us on Ed's Up today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you uh, later in October. Today's Lit Bit is from Poets.org, and it's by Judith Viorst, and the name of it is Since Hannah Moved Away. Many children know the pain of having a good friend move away or be gone for a time, and so this recognizes that sadness that children feel whenever a friend moves away. Since Hannah Moved Away. The tires on my bike are flat. The sky is grouchy gray. At least it feels that way since Hannah moved away. Chocolate ice cream tastes like prunes. December's come to stay. They've taken back the maize and June since Hannah moved away. Flowers smell like halibut. Velvet feels like hay. Every handsome dog's a mutt since Hannah moved away. Nothing's fun to laugh about. Nothing's fun to play. They call me, but I won't come out since Hannah moved away. That's Since Hannah Moved Away by Judith Viorst on Poets.org. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 